Good morning again. Welcome. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to see you starting out the new year strong in church. I haven't seen you guys in church all year. No, that's I'm kidding. That's terrible. Uh, hey, you know, just before we dive into the message, just a little insight into the kind of church family we are here, if you're new around here, and into like the life of our staff family. This morning, as I was getting ready to preach, at the first service, I was sitting in the front row, and, and just to be honest, I'm tense and nervous and begging God for grace again um, to you know, help me do all right when I'm up here, because even though I do it a lot, it's still an intimidating and very humbling thing to stand up in front of many of you and open the Word of God. And I, I always flip through my notes just to make sure I have all the pages, because it's a bummer to get up here and not have all the pages, and to make sure they're in the right order. And I'm flipping through, and right in the middle of my sermon, I came across this sheet, and, and someone slipped it in there this morning when I wasn't looking. It says, and I just want to remind you how wonderful Dan Larson is. <laughs> And if you don't know Dan, he's one of the pastors on our staff. He's been here over 30 years, and he is wonderful. He's one of the most wonderful people I know. So if you see him today, remind him that he's wonderful. He needs the encouragement. Love you, Dan. Thank you for that. <laughs> I'm literally stressed and nervous, and I just started laughing out loud in the front row. So good. Well, I'm excited about this next series. I'm also excited about today, because today we are talking about Resolutions and rethinking our resolutions. It's January 5th. It's the season in our society when many of us are hitting the life reset button. We're setting some goals. We're resolving to change a few things, perhaps. This is the time of year when many people are trying something new, spending more time with family and friends, eating more healthy, losing some weight exercising and going to the gym. I was at my gym last week on Thursday. I have never seen it that full ever. And of course, that's because I'm not there often. But I was there on the third. No, I go a lot. But, um, but it's, it's this resolution season. And as we make resolutions, and even this year as I've reflected on a few of my 2020 resolutions, a question has sort of floated to the surface of my mind. What would Jesus say about our resolutions? Or maybe to dig a little deeper, what do our resolutions say about us? What do the things that we are longing for in this new year say about what we really care about and value in our world? And these questions led me to a passage this morning where I, I believe Jesus speaks to this issue of, of where our focus is, where our hearts are headed, where, where our goals are taking us. And in this passage this morning, he's going to offer us a warning and an invitation. There's going to be warning Jesus and then inviting Jesus. He's going to warn us about pursuing the wrong things and then invite us to pursue the right thing. We'll dive in on Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 20. If you have a Bible this morning, grab it, pull it out. If you want to use the pew rack Bible in front of you, it's on page 792, Matthew 11. And as you turn there, it's important for us to understand the context of what Jesus says. Because right before our passage today, Jesus does this thing where he compares these two individuals, does sort of a, a case study of two very different lives. The first life, the first guy he looks at is a man named Herod. 
And Herod was the ruler of the region where Jesus lived. He was the king of that territory. The territory was called Galilee. You can see it there in orange on the screen. And in verse 7, up above, Jesus refers to Herod as a reed. He says, a reed. And this is because rulers in Jesus' day, kings in the ancient world, would often uh, take on a symbol. They would associate themselves with a symbol. Sort of like... Uh, professional athletes might do in our day. Have you ever noticed this, that professional athletes all now have a logo or a symbol, or a lot of them do, the most famous ones? Um, see, quick little quiz here. See if you can guess the athlete associated with this symbol. Michael Jordan. That's an, I gave you a layup. The first one was easy. It's going to get harder from here. Number two, anyone know? Ken Griffey Jr., nice work, it is, Ken Griffey Jr. Number three, for all you soccer fans, that's a hint. Lionel Messi, you got some sports fans over here. The first service was like, I didn't have a clue. Uh, Number four, we should all get this one. He plays for the Blazers now, Carmelo Anthony, yeah, that's right. And then, this is an easy one, another easy one before a hard one at the end. Tiger Woods. And then finally, last but not least, I thought about coming up with my, it's funny you said that, because I really thought it would be funny if I came up with my own logo and put it up there, like Pastor Dave or something, but I just felt like it was a little obnoxious, so I didn't do it. This one's actually the famous tennis player, Andy Murray, Scottish tennis player, won Wimbledon a few years ago. Anyway, the point is this, famous athletes in our world will now come up with a logo. Why? to promote their notoriety, to promote their popularity. And kings in Jesus' day would do the same thing. You see, there's nothing new under the sun. And Herod Antipas, he chooses a symbol for himself. He chooses a reed. And the reason he does this is because reeds were a very common thing in the region where he ruled Galilee. They grew all around the Sea of Galilee. And Herod would even, he even went as far as imprinting his symbol on the coins for his people. You can see an old coin, an old, very ancient coin that Herod would hand out. You can see the reed imprinted on there. This was Herod's way of reminding the people, I'm the one in charge. I'm the one who controls the money. I'm a pretty big deal. But Jesus doesn't just refer to Herod as a reed. He actually calls him a reed swayed by the wind. He says, you know that guy, Herod, a reed swayed by the wind. And what he's doing is he's reminding his listeners that Herod is the kind of person who would do anything to gain privilege and prestige and power because that's what Herod was all about. Those were his values, the things that Herod resolved to pursue. Privilege, prestige, and power. And so Jesus takes Herod, and then he compares him with another famous person in Galilee, a prophet by the name of John the Baptist. And John was someone who was completely unlike Herod. John would not do or say anything for privilege, prestige, or power. John would do and say whatever was right, whatever was true, whatever was good, no matter the cost to himself. In fact, during this time when Jesus spoke these words, John was actually in prison for speaking out against some of Herod's 
moral indiscretions. And this is what Jesus says about John the Baptist. He says, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And here's Jesus' point again. You have two men, two different lives, two different people. One person who sets their mind and life towards the values and things of this world, comfort, pleasure, approval, wealth. And another who gives up his life to stand and speak for what is good and right and just and true. And what Jesus is saying here is, if you want to walk with me, if you want to experience my kingdom, if you want to follow me, then you walk the way of John. Then you follow John the Baptist because John the Baptist is one who follows me and he knows about God's will and ways in this world. So, so there's just a comparison. There's, there's the Herod way and there's the John way. And then Jesus says this, and here's where we'll get into our passage for today. Verse 20. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum? Will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Isn't this a lighthearted way to start the new year? Isn't Jesus just lifting your spirit? All the positivity, Jesus? Well, let's talk about this passage because I think it's an important one for us. In this passage, Jesus rebukes three towns. He, he looks at three towns square in the eye and he says, warning, woe to you. And here's the kicker. These are not the towns people expected to be rebuked. This is not what people would have expected to hear from Jesus. In fact, it's the exact opposite of what they would have expected. Tyre and Sidon, Jesus mentions them. Those were two Phoenician cities located to the north and to the east of Galilee. They were coastal seaport cities that were filled with Baal worship, vulgarity, and temple prostitution. If you can kind of imagine sailors coming into port like hitting land after a long time out at sea. And then what's the stereotype? What do sailors do after they've been out at sea for a long time? They come back into shore and they party. And then all the stuff that happened, right? They have this, it's not a pretty picture. And that's what these two towns were built on. That's what they were known for. Sodom is another city mentioned by Jesus in this section. It's a, it's a city from the Old Testament And God pours out his wrath on this city. He destroys it because of its consummate and decadent evil. Its its massive ungodliness causes God to destroy the whole city. That's how evil and wicked it was. And, And yet Jesus says, they're not the ones who need a warning. In the middle of the first century, a Jew would have thought, there is no city more than Sodom that deserves God's wrath. 
There's no, no city more deserving of God's wrath than, than Sodom. And yet, again, these three cities, these three vulgar evil cities, are not the cities, are not the people Jesus is warning today. Take a look at the map real quick. This again is the region of Galilee. You can see those three cities there. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. These are the cities. These are the people Jesus warns. And from what scholars tell us, this is what's called the evangelistic triangle. You see the little triangle there? Inside of that triangle, on and inside that triangle, is where Jesus spent two-thirds of his life in ministry. Two-thirds of the stories we read about from Jesus' life in the New Testament happen right there. Friends, the people of this region heard more of Jesus. Teaching, they saw more of Jesus' miracles than anybody else. And these are small towns. This is a rural area. Capernaum, which was sort of Jesus' place of residence where he made his home, it was a very small village. And so most likely, Jesus knew everyone in that village by name. That's why when Jesus says, Woe to you. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Capernaum. He doesn't say it with a mean, vengeful spirit. This isn't like, woe to you. You've crossed me one too many times. Now I'm going to kick your hiney. No, that's not Jesus here. When he says, woe to you, in Greek, the word woe actually expresses sorrowful pity. This is Jesus Deeply brokenhearted over the fact that these people who he has spent the most time with are not following him, are not living their lives according to his ways. And this is why Jesus is so upset, because these people have seen and these people have heard and they've personally been invited into a life that's so much greater than just following Herod and pursuing the things of this world. And yet, and yet, that is exactly what they continue to do. They continue to simply live for this world and set God on the shelf. You see, the scary part of this this warning, friends, is Jesus is not talking here to people who have rejected him outright. These are not people who say, Jesus, we don't like you. Get out of here. We don't, we don't believe in you. Like, leave us. No. These are people that hung with Jesus, that listened to Jesus, that took in what Jesus was saying and doing. However, they never allowed the message to penetrate their minds and hearts and lives. They sat in church but they never let the gospel reorder their resolutions. They never let the gospel really begin to sink in and saturate and direct the way they lived. And Jesus says, if that's you, then I've got a warning for you. Let me put it this way, just to be a little personal. These were people more concerned with weight loss, good times, making money, and amassing cool experiences than they were with following the way of Jesus. Don't you see, friends, the reason this passage should wake us up is because in it, Jesus is talking to good, moral, religious people whose values and goals fail to line up with a life that looks more like John the Baptist than Herod. 
Friends, this passage should cause us pause because it's meant to cause us pause. This passage was written to good, old-fashioned, church-going folk. It's a warning to you and me that simply engaging in a few religious activities and then going about your business of pursuing and advancing your own personal prosperity in this world is not the Jesus way. And so he warns us and says, woe to you if that's who you are. But then there's, there's also an invitation from Jesus. And Jesus' invitation can really be summed up with one word, and it's the word repent. Sort of an old school preacher Bible word, repent. It makes me feel like old school just saying it, repent. Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. That's what he was looking for. He was looking for them to repent, and they didn't repent. He says, if I did all these miracles in the pagan towns of Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Like, serious repentance. Friends, when someone was mourning, when someone was deeply saddened by their behavior, they would wear this very scratchy and uncomfortable material called sackcloth, and they would douse themselves with ashes as sort of a physical demonstration of their sorrow and as a public sort of declaration that they wanted to be a different person, that they wanted to live in a new way. Repentance friends, is is completely 180 degrees turning your life around, changing your thinking, changing your perspective, changing your behavior, changing your goals. You see, once you've encountered Jesus, once the gospel has gotten into your life, even your goals, even the desires of your heart, even the desires of your new year will shift. The things that matter most will change. And Jesus looks at these people and he just doesn't see it. He doesn't see this change in them. Nothing has changed about their lives, even though they've been hanging out with him for a long time. Anything in your life need to change these days? Anything in your life need to change these days? need to turn 180 your thinking does your thinking need to change your perspective your behavior your habits your patterns do your goals need to change friends where do you desperately need to turn 180 degrees away from simply pursuing the things of this world and towards pursuing the things of god away from making these things most important in my life towards making these things most important in my life, away from this will bring me joy and peace and happiness and satisfaction to this is where I'll ultimately and truly find joy and peace and satisfaction. Does anything in your life need to change? Friends, it's 2020. Listen to that number. It's 2020. Time is going by. I'm personally a little disappointed because 
I'm a child of the 80s, and I was quite certain that by 2020, we would have flying cars, and we don't. So I'm super bummed. Like, Michael J. Fox is a liar. Back to the future, that's junk. But here's the point. It's 2020. If we're going to make resolutions, let's at least make resolutions that matter. Let's at least make resolutions that have the power to change our life and give us what we're ultimately longing for as human beings. Here's what Jesus says, or here's what it says in Matthew, verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. This is one of those verses where you have to kind of dig in to really understand what Jesus is saying. Because he's not saying it's bad to be wise and learned. The Bible lifts up wisdom as a wonderful quality, right? To be learned, to be educated, to be thoughtful, to think through things. That's something that Jesus and God would celebrate and that the scriptures would say is a very good thing. Jesus is not saying don't be wise, don't be learned. One of my favorite Scholars in Matthew, David Garland, says it this way. Wisdom and learning in and of themselves are not looked down upon by Jesus here. The problem is when one considers oneself to be wise and learned. When one starts to take on this this posture, this attitude, this self-belief, I am wise, I am learned, I can make my own way. Because this passage, friends, this entire passage is about who you're depending on and trusting for to find the deep meaning and satisfaction that your soul is longing for. Who are you trusting in order to find the satisfaction that your soul is longing for? This is why Jesus says, You're in the know. You will win. You're on the right track if you are like a little child, like a babe. The Greek word here literally means infant, if you are like an infant. And what he's saying is this. Once you understand that you're completely helpless, you're completely dependent on someone else for guidance and direction and nourishment. Jesus is saying here, when you think you can find satisfaction and joy and peace on your own by following your own goals, by by following earthly and pursuing earthly desires, when you think that's going to fill your soul, you're wrong. You're going to be sorely disappointed. You'll never get there. Most of you have resolutions that are going to result in this much long-term joy and satisfaction for your life. Zero. Why? Because great experiences, more great experiences this year, right? Hashtag my best life. Did it again. Post it on Instagram, right? Great experiences are fun, but the fun fades. We should know this by now. We're smarter than this. You've been there. You've had that amazing vacation planned, that wonderful trip. You've looked forward to it for years or weeks or days or months. And then it came, and it was great. It was a good time. Everything went according to plan. The weather was wonderful. It was phenomenal. But then guess what? It's over. And you're depressed again because you have to go back to work. And so you start planning another vacation thinking, maybe this is the one that will bring joy to my life. Maybe this is the one that will work. Friends, it's not going to work. 
Great experiences are fun, but the fun fades. Being healthy, that's a really good thing. Taking care of your body, your temple that the Lord gave you, it's a good thing to be healthy, but it won't fill your heart. Families and friends, more time with them, that's a popular resolution. That's a wonderful thing, but it will not give you eternal life, meaning, and purpose. No other human being can do that for you. Making money, losing 10 pounds, or 15, or for some of you, 20. No, I'm just teasing. For me, 20. Um, You're like, that's hurtful, Pastor Dave. Uh, (laughs) Losing weight is not a bad thing. Being healthy is not a bad thing. It's not a bad ambition. But friends, it will not satisfy your soul. 10 pounds later, you're going to look in the mirror, and you may feel a little better, but your soul is still going to be there. And that void, I'm telling you, skinny won't make you happy. Skinny won't make you happy. Skinny is not bad. Skinny can be good. Healthy can be good, but it won't make you happy. It is not what your soul is longing for. Jesus says, like a child, you're going to have to depend on someone else. You can't get there on your own. You have to rely on someone else's strength and power and knowledge and wisdom. And Jesus says, that someone is me. I am the only one who can give you what you're looking for. I am the way to the Father, he says in verse 27. And then in verse 28, listen to these words. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, what I love about this invitation from Jesus is that it's as personal as it gets. This is not Jesus inviting us away from a list of things the world says will make us happy, only to invite us into a list of religious things that other people say will make us happy. This is not Jesus saying, exchange a worldly list for a religious list. That is not his point. This is actually a good moment to stop and remember who Jesus is talking to here. Because he's not talking to the secular world. He's not talking to, to the materialists out there. He's not talking to other people who don't go to church or believe in God. He's talking to good, moral, religious people. That's who he's speaking with. That's who he's talking about. He's talking to people whose resolutions might include things like pray more, read the Bible more, go to church more. All good things, by the way. Last week, Pastor Carl preached, and he said, read the book, read the book, read the book. And I said, amen, and amen, and amen. But here's the second question. Why are you reading the book? Are you reading the book to try to prove to yourself and others and God that you're a good enough person, that you're a good enough Christian, that God should accept you? Are you trying to prove your morality through religion, through religious actions? Or are you reading the book in response to the grace and love and gospel that Jesus has offered you? See, those are two very different reading moments. You see, good moral religious people, the good moral religious people Jesus is talking to here, they would have had things on their list like pray more, read the Bible more, go to church more. Again, all good things. But the truth is this. You cannot earn your way to God. If you are trying to do religious things, if you're here in church this morning, I'm going to do better in 2020. I'm coming to church. I'm going to force myself to just 
be disciplined. Why? I'm going to prove to God that I care about him. You might as well go back to money and exercise and weight loss and vacations. It's about the same thing. In fact, the religious path might be worse because it's more deceptive. Friends, this is not Jesus telling the world to be more religious. This is Jesus inviting religious people into a relationship with him. Something real, something sustainable, something transforming in their lives. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. That word weary means to work to the point of sweat and exhaustion. To work until you're absolutely fatigued. To try so hard and pursue so relentlessly things you think will bring you joy, only in the end to discover it's a dead-end road. Let me ask you a question this morning. Church people, maybe you're not a church person, you're here just like for the first time, but you're lumped in with us now. Let me ask you a question, church people. What's wearing you out in this life? What burdens are you carrying that have been dropped on your back? What treadmill are you on where you just think, if I could only do better, if I could only be more consistent, if I, if I could only be more disciplined, if I could just, if I could just try a little, be, if I could just put it on my calendar, if I could just get an accountability partner to sort of force me to, to do it or not, what, what burden are you carrying? What treadmill do you find yourself on? Because Jesus says, my burden is light. That's not my way. It's not the life that I want for you. Jesus says, when you're tired, when you're exhausted, come to me. Come to me. By the way, when the Jews talked about and anticipated the kingdom of God breaking into this world, when they anticipated that moment, you know what they would call it? The time of rest. When the time of rest is here, when the time of rest comes. And that's when they knew that things would be made right, that this world would be made right, that society would be made right, that their very souls would be made right, that the things that are not right within them would finally be lined up and corrected once more. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I will make things right, not just in this world, but in you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is a weird passage for us because we're not, most of us, familiar with yokes. What's a yoke? Yeah, it's the thing in the middle of an egg, right? That's a yoke. Not in this passage. In this passage, a yoke... It is a frame that a farmer would put over his oxen so that the oxen could, could pull the wagon or the plow, right? You'd hook the, the reins to that, and it would use the yoke to pull forward. And, and it was a symbol of, sub, of subjection. A yoke like, symbolized someone being subjected to another because the oxen would be submitted fully to the oxen driver, and the yoke is what would submit them. Because of this, a yoke was also, uh, in Jesus' day, a common term for a rabbi's teaching. A rabbi's teaching was called their yoke, because when you accepted a rabbi as your teacher, just the way an oxen would be subjected to the oxen driver, you would place yourself in submission to that rabbi. 
You'd be under the subjection of that rabbi and his teaching. And so Jesus says the key to finding rest, the key to entering the kingdom of God and experiencing the things of God is not trying harder on your own. The key is putting on his yoke and following his teaching and submitting your life to him. That's what he's saying. You know, in Palestine, yokes were made out of wood and oxen would be brought in and the carpenter would measure the oxen and they would carefully and meticulously carve the wood just so, so that it would fit perfectly and so that as the oxen pulled, it wouldn't gouge or chafe the animal. In the closing verse of this section, did you notice that Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That word easy, by the way, to follow Jesus is not easy. He actually says sometimes it's hard, but that word easy in Greek actually means well-fitting. My yoke is well-fitting and my burden is light. My, my yoke won't gouge into you. It, it's made perfectly and crafted specifically just for you. This is important, friends, because here's something we must understand. All of us, every single person in the entire world has a yoke. We all have a teaching or a life philosophy that we have adopted, one that we're following in order and in hopes that we might find meaning and happiness and contentment and success in this world. For some people, it's a specific teaching. They've decided, I'm going to follow this way of life, this specific teaching. Why? Because I think that teaching will lead me into meaning, joy, fulfillment, happiness, right? Other people, they're not thinking really explicitly about it. They just have fallen into a life philosophy, a yoke of materialism or of the American dream. But we've all answered this question consciously and mostly subconsciously. What will bring fulfillment to my life? And when we answer that question and begin to follow that path, we take on a yoke. And so the question is, what yoke are you wearing? And will that yoke work? Will it deliver? If it will deliver, for how long? And is that yoke made perfectly to fit your soul, to fit who you've created to be. You see, Jesus says, come to me because I know what yoke will fit you, and I know what yoke will fit you. Why? Because I created you. I know exactly what you need because I'm the one who worked you and formed you from the dust. My yoke, my teaching, my offer of the kingdom will not gouge or gall at your neck, but it will fit well. It's tailor-made just for you. And when you enter into and put on my yoke and submit yourself to me and yield yourself to me and follow me and my ways, you will find the thing that you are longing for more than anything else, and that's this, rest for your soul. Rest for your soul, not like you're going to have a tired, weary, sleepy, drowsy soul. None of us want that. No, but Jesus is saying is that peace you've hungered for, that satisfaction you've longed for, that meaning you've been yearning for, that purpose and fulfillment and hope and joy for the deepest parts of who you are, you can find that in me and only in me. All other paths are dead ends. 
This is such an important message for 2020. Because so many of you in here are pursuing other things, hoping and thinking and truly believing that happiness awaits, and it doesn't. Maybe for a time, maybe for a moment, but in the end, it will be disappointment. And Jesus is saying, warning, warning, it's a dead-end road. Turn around, let's go another way. So Jesus offers. He says, you will only find this rest for your soul in me. And so he makes this invitation. It's a very simple one, but it's so profound and it's so important. Come to me, he says. Just come to me. Just come to me. Don't come to religion. Don't come to trying harder. Just come to me. Just come to me. Just enter into relationship with me. Just allow me to be your Lord and Savior and Father and friend. Just come to me. Come to me if you feel like you've been chasing the wrong kingdom. Come to me if you've been relying on your own wisdom and effort to find meaning and purpose and satisfaction in your life. Come to me if you feel like you've just been doing religion for a long time. Come to me if you feel like you've heard a lot about Jesus in your life, but you've never been close. You've sat in church, but you've never drawn near. You've never really had relationship. Come to me, he says. It's not too late. Come experience, Jesus says, grace through my death. Come experience true and forever forgiveness because of the sacrifice I made for you. Come experience victory and life and strength and courage and the resolve you need through my resurrection. Through the victory I have already won over the grave for you. Come experience unending, eternal, unconditional love from the God of the universe. A heavenly Father who will never leave you nor forsake you. The invitation is here, friends. And I'll tell you what, it is the resolution above all resolutions to draw near to Jesus. Everything else pales in comparison. To know and follow him, to make him Lord of your life. So this morning, whoever you are, whatever you've done, wherever you're at and however you got there, my prayer is that 2020 will be the year that above all else you come to Jesus and find finally rest for your soul. Friends, this morning, we're going to celebrate the public de declaration of people who have done just that, who have come to Jesus, people who have taken his yoke, who have submitted themselves and surrendered themselves to him, people who have said, I cannot do this life on my own, I cannot make my own way, I cannot find rest for my soul without him. So I'm declaring to trust him, his death and resurrection for me. And friends, if this is you, if you want rest for your soul, if you have a relationship with Jesus, if you long for a relationship with Jesus, if you believe in his death and resurrection and that it won the victory over sin and the grave for you, if you have trusted him as Lord and Savior in your life, then the scriptures say this, make a public declaration of that through baptism. 
It's very simple. If Jesus is Lord of your life, if you have that relationship with him, if you've determined that you are going to now submit to him and surrender to him as Lord, then you declare that through baptism by saying his death and resurrection, down into the water, his death, up out of the water, his resurrection. For me, my entire life and existence is bound up in the death and resurrection of Jesus, and I will follow him now and forever. He is my Lord and Savior. That's what the scriptures say to do, to make that declaration. And I'll tell you, it's a wonderful and powerful declaration. Do not wait another day. I waited until I was 30 three years old to be baptized. It's a long story for another message. It was way too long. I shouldn't have waited that long. But at 33, when I went into those waters and came out, there was a freedom, there was a joy, there was a hope, and there was a power from being united with Christ in his death and resurrection. It's not magic water, but the declaration is powerful. What are you waiting for? It's 2020. It's 2020. Time is going by. Don't wait another day. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, come today. If the Holy Spirit is pinging you, do not resist the Holy Spirit. May this be the year that you live your life fully surrendered to and walking with Jesus, that you would experience the joy and hope and peace and the rest that your soul is longing for. I am going to pray. I'm going to finally end this message, and I'm going to pray... And the people who have signed up to be baptized are going to stand as I pray. You're allowed to walk during prayer. Just pray as you go. They're going to stand. They're going to walk right back here, and they're going to get ready to be baptized. If you're here today and you had not planned on being baptized, but the Holy Spirit is calling you, let me invite you to just come back. There'll be pastors in the back. We'd love to chat with you. If you are ready to declare publicly your allegiance to Jesus and his lordship in your life, then today is your day. What a wonderful way to start 2020 surrendered to and with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So again, I'm going to pray, and if that's you, don't let anything stop you. We sang it early, nothing is holding me back. Don't let anything hold you back from this moment. Don't let anything hold you back from a God who loves you and wants to embrace you and help you be everything he longs for you to be. Father, this morning I pray courage and boldness, conviction, humility, love, joy, yearning for satisfaction over us as a church, God. Help us to yearn for you and to long for you. Turn our lives, Lord, and help us to make that turn, that 180-degree turn away from all the things this world promises will bring life and joy and satisfaction. Help us to turn back to you today, Lord, to walk away from those things. And then, Lord, for these folks who are going to be baptized today, who are going to declare that you are Lord and Savior, give them peace, give them courage, give them joy, give them strength, Remind them, Lord, of this promise that you will never leave them nor forsake them in the highs and in the lows. You'll be there with them through it all. We love you, Lord. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for the gift of declaring that love in this sacrament of baptism. We pray it all in the wonderful and powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.